following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Let's open our Bibles, Titus chapter 3, this morning is where we're going we're gonna to be this morning. If you're new with us, we're glad you're here. Uh, my name is Dave York. I'm the, I'm the senior pastor here. And it's my privilege to uh, pretty regularly be the guy that preaches God's word to this church. This is a great church. Um, one thing I love about this church is when I say open our Bibles, you can hear Bibles opening. I mean, that's a holy moment in the church, right? So the last several weeks, we've been studying a series on relationships. We've called it redemptive relationships. And what we're trying to do is we're looking at how did God, what did God intend? For relationships and and last Sunday we talked about what happens what are we to do as Christians when things go bad you know how do we maintain these relationships and one, one thing that we recognize was that Christ has restored us to the original mandate that he gave us to be our brother's keepers and if we've sinned against others we are free to go confess our sin to them acknowledge what we've done ask them to forgive us and if they've sinned against us we're free to go to them and meet them and talk to them about what's happened and be willing to forgive. And we can do this because Jesus has really transformed us to be ministers of reconciliation. And I can tell you this, through this series, one of the things that's been really fascinating is hearing stories of where people are going to one another to be reconciled. It has been an incredible thing to hear people talking to people that maybe they've either had an issue with or they just recently something came up or something came up over the evening they were together and just practicing the things we're talking about. And it's been fun to watch God and hear God be at work in your lives. Now, one of the things that we saw last week that I hope you caught that in my opinion <clears throat> is one of the, the best truths that you're ever going to apply to your soul was right at the end of the sermon. We talked about this. We saw that God has criticized us more than anybody else in the universe ever will. And it's revealed by the fact that it took our sin, Jesus' death, to deal with our sin. Now just do the math on that for a moment. Your sin and my sin is so vile before God that it took the death of His Son to deal with it. You're not going to get anything that's going to speak to you in a more critical way, with a more critical judgment than that word. That it took the Son of God's death to deal with our sin. And that reality, knowing that, believing that, applying that, allows us to receive criticism from others as a gift from God. We don't have to get defensive anymore. We don't have to you know, say, you, know, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Matter of we can say, actually, you know what you're talking about. You don't even know the full story, Right? So we've been criticized more than anybody else in the universe ever has because the Son of God died for our sin. But we've also saw, didn't we, that that same cross reveals we've been loved more than anybody else. God, nobody else will ever love us like this. The God of the universe reveals His love to us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. Right? And we can take that to our own hearts to apply it. What that allows us to do then is we can freely, openly, honestly confess our sin before one another 
and be good with other people knowing that we've sinned, asking them to forgive us for our sin, and we can have the freedom of staying current in our relationships. We don't have to keep sweeping things under the rug anymore. Right? We can live the joy of dealing with issues as they arise and maintaining these redemptive relationships that God's given us. That, that hope of the gospel, right? I mean, that, that beauty of the gospel is what we've got to keep seeing. Now, you're going to hear me say this a couple times today, but gospel doctrine will create gospel culture. Right? Gospel doctrine will create gospel culture. So as we apply the gospel to our souls, as we hear the gospel preached to us on a regular basis, as we learn to apply the gospel more to our lives, what you're going to see is culture coming out of your life, and it happens in your church. So the question we're going to deal with today is how do we protect the church in redemptive relationships? Literally, how do we as a church <clears throat> protect what God wants for us in unity, harmony, and love? And I'm, by this, I'm particularly concerned with a few things. I'm particularly concerned with, as Christians in the church, how do we handle gossip? How do we handle slander? <clears throat> and what do you do with divisive people? How do you handle hard things? One of the things I love about this church is we're not afraid to handle hard things. We, by God's grace, we've handled hard things, and we've We've moved through those hard things. They've been tough, but we continue to keep the gospel in mind because we know the gospel doesn't mean we're going to handle easy things, right? And we're going to handle tough things this morning. So let's stand together. We're going to read Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 together, <clears throat> and then we're going to pray. We stand because we believe this is God's word. We honor God by standing as it's read. They did this in the Old Testament as well. We're just tying ourselves to great church history. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating other people. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray. Father, we, we need your help today because, again, you bring us to a text in Scripture that is really hard, and it's dealing with hard situations and hard people. But we thank you because by your power, by your grace, your mercy at work within us, <clears throat> you would not give us something to do like this without your power behind it, nor your authority behind it. So we want to submit to your authority today. We want to acknowledge your power today, and we ask you to help us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. 
Now, if you're new, you should have got an outline, or when you walk in the door, you get an outline. And here's the big idea, or what we're going to, I hope we're going to learn today. This will come up on the screen. Relationships in the church matter to God. In Christ, God has provided a way for us to protect the unity of relationships. Let me say that again. Relationships in the church matter to God, and in Christ, God has provided a way for us to protect the unity of relationships. That, that's what I hope <clears throat> that we're going to see this morning. So let's start with the very first point there in your outline, which is gospel motivation for how we treat others. In this text, this, this letter is written to a pastor. This is one of Paul's pastoral letters. And if you have any pastor at all that you want to follow, he had better have spent his time in First and Second Timothy and Titus. And he'd better take these admonitions from Paul as if Paul was speaking through Titus to that pastor. And in the last chapter of Titus chapter 3, Paul is giving final thoughts to Titus, and it's almost like a, a shotgun approach. He's giving him a several different things that he wants him to apply to his church. These are like pastoral admonitions. It's like the apostle Paul admonishing a pastor to tell him, these are the things that you should be doing and be thinking about. And because these are God's words, and because God's words are timeless, and because they've been given to a pastor, then the pastors of this church read Titus 3 as if words spoken to us about how we're to handle and care for the church of God that has been given to our charge. That we are to steward the church as God has already aligned. And I want you to notice what Paul told Titus in this section. He talked to him about how Christians should treat other people. Notice verse 1 with me where he says that Christians how Christians should relate to their authorities and rulers by being obedient, ready for every good work, and by being submissive. Now, man, could there not be a more challenging word to us in the last two years? But notice these words were given to a pastor to tell his people these are the way that we should be living. Verse 2 goes on, he says, tells pastors to instruct their people about how Christians should speak <clears throat> and treat everyone now notice, this is still in connection with verse 1 when he says, don't speak evil of anyone, which would mean assuming the rulers and authorities over you. And again, as we've talked about through this, this, these last couple of years, go back through your social media feeds and your text messaging and ask yourself, was there speaking evil of rulers and leaders? And Paul's instruction here is, we should not speak evil of anyone. Avoid fighting with them and show, notice what he says, perfect courtesy, meaning leave no room for being rude, for being unkind, for being disrespectful. Now, as if those verses were not challenging enough, as Paul lays out the behavior, we could all say, here's what we're to do. But what Paul does in verses three through seven is absolutely astounding. Paul says, here's what you're to do, but here's the gospel motivation behind it. Here's the reasons for it. Literally, what are the reasons why Christian people are to treat others the way Paul has described in verses 1 and 2? Notice what he said in verse 3. He states, well, we were once foolish, disobedient, angry, hated by others, and notice, and hating others. In other words, what Paul says is, hey, Christians, guess what? We of all people 
understand and can empathize with others who are treating us poorly because we at one time as well treated other people poorly. We can understand haters because we ourselves have been haters. In other words, it takes a sinner to know a sinner. We all know what that looks like. We were just once like, we did the very same things. It's why we've said before, listen, don't, don't be shocked by what sinners do. Sinners sin. It's what you do, right? It's what I do. So we shouldn't be shocked. We should just remember, Paul is saying, remember what you once were. You, you did the exact same things. But then you get verse 4. And anytime Paul gives you these were statements in one verse, you were this, you should always be looking really close in the text for a word he's going to use in a transition, the word but. It's my favorite phrase in the New Testament. Ephesians 2 would say, but God, being rich in mercy. But here we see, but when the goodness and kindness of, of, our, of God, our Savior, appeared, everything changed. He saved us not because of anything that we did that was good or righteous or holy or spiritual, but he did it by his own mercy. And when he did it, he made us brand new people. You once were this. You once hated other people, but now something new has come in. The goodness of God has come in to you and brought mercy to you. And he gave you his Holy Spirit and he poured out his Holy Spirit within you so that you might live life on this earth as heirs of eternal life. In other words, what Paul's saying is God saved us so that we might live radically differently. He saved us not because of anything that we did that was good, but because God was kind and merciful. You're aware, right, that, that God didn't save you to get you on his team. You understand? You're aware. I mean, you should say amen to that, right? I mean, right? If you don't, you gotta, you're thinking too highly of yourself, right? I mean, God didn't pick you and said, that's, I want that, that if, once I get them on my, on my team, we, we made it. No, God chose you because of his mercy, his kindness. He chose you because he set his heart upon you. Now, notice what Paul is saying here that when you put verses 1 through 7 all together, you, you find something fascinating. Paul is saying God has provided <clears throat> such amazing power in the gospel of Jesus that we can have bad leaders, you can have bad friendships, you can have malicious people all around you, and you still don't have to treat them the way they have treated you. You didn't, you didn't catch that. I mean, the look on your face was like, I mean, I don't even want to, I mean, I need to get a mirror up here. I mean, it's, Paul is saying there is so much power in the gospel that you can have bad leaders, which most of you in the room would say, amen to that. We've had that. You can have bad friendships who are maliciously hurting you, who betray you. You can have malicious people that aren't friends, but are your enemies, and you still, because of the power of the gospel at work in you, you still don't have to treat them the way they have treated you. There we go. Okay, that's better. That's better. Good. 
Okay? Now, now let's be, let's be challenged. Let's be challenged by this. And marvel at the grace of God in this. Listen, God has empowered his people to treat others the way God has treated us. So you've heard the golden rule, right? Treat others the way you want to be treated. Paul is taking it farther. No, don't treat others the way you want to be treated because the way you want to be treated isn't good enough. Treat others the way God has treated you. Do you you see your need for the power of Christ? And this is for Christian people. This is non-Christian, dude, you need to figure this out. No, this is Christian people, you need to figure this out. We need the Spirit of God in this. And what's powerful in the text is Paul is saying, we need the Spirit of God, and guess what? God has already given you the Spirit of God. God leans in to help you with this. God is wanting to transform you for this reason. That's remarkable news that God would not shy away from this. See, the world is going to say, treat others the way they treat us. But God says, no, treat others the way God has treated us. See, think about how natural this is for your family. How many times as a parent did you see your child and you say, bud, why did you hit her? Because she, she hit me first. Honey, why would you ever say such mean things to your brother? Did you see how mean he was to me? Okay. You don't have to teach that. Why? That's as natural as breathing. What needs a transformation is to treat others the way God has treated us. See, the world says rail against your authorities. Rail against your kings, your presidents, your politicians, especially when they don't do what you like. But God says, treat your kings, your presidents, your leaders the way God has treated you. With respect, care, and gentleness. I mean, oh my word. What is Paul calling us to? See, the gospel will and should impact the way we treat others gospel doctrine should create gospel culture see and paul is so sure of this one through seven that he says something interesting to titus in verse eight that we can't ignore he says titus dave york leaders at clf this saying is trustworthy meaning it is certain and it is true and he says to you leaders pastors insist on these things. In other words, don't let your people off the hook on these issues. Why? So that those who have believed in God, who claim the name of Jesus, may devote themselves to good works like treating others like God has treated them. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, this is his way, this is Dave York's paraphrase, Jesus will make an impact in your people, and it is right, it is right for pastors to teach, instruct, and insist on Christians modeling Christ in their dealings with others in the world. It is right. Why is it right? Because God commanded Paul to write these words to Titus, the pastor, to insist on these things, right? right to insist this what's intriguing is 
it's a challenging text, but it goes from challenging to sobering within one verse. Because in these verses, verses 9 through 11, Paul then says, here's the gospel motivation for how verses 1 through 2 need to be lived out. But he takes the same gospel and uses the same motivation, the same insist attitude into verses 9 through 12 when he talks about the second point, which is the seriousness of divisive people. And notice how he does this. In verse 9, he instructed Titus that he and his people should avoid foolish quarrels. Basically what he's saying is, listen, there are fights that matter and there are fights that don't matter. He's saying don't get caught up in silly arguments that have no end. Don't make open-handed issues close-handed issues. Don't make a state border that would be like a distinctive for your church or a personal preference into a national border that would be something that would govern all churches of all time. Don't make silly things become, you know, mountains, right? Don't make mountains out of molehills, right? You know, it's happened to me recently. I was hanging out with a, one of the coaches with my kids, and uh, he talked about, you know, Caleb challenged the challenge of tying his shoes periodically, and this guy said the reason for that is because you haven't taught him how to do it right. And I, and I said, that's open-handed. It's about to become close-handed. I mean, we're, <laughs> right. I mean, you, you think I've not taught my kid how to tie his shoes? I mean, really, I'm right? Silly argument that I was ready to argue about, right? Let's talk about the rabbit around the tree. I mean, all that, right? Open-handed, close-handed. His point is, don't make silly things. Don't, they're gonna, they don't have an end. But in verses 11, 10 and 11, he told Titus, what do you do with somebody who does this? What do you do with somebody that keeps making open-handed issues close-handed? What do you do with somebody that wants to divide the people of God? And he says very clearly, Titus, warn him once, then twice, and have nothing more to do with him. Because this person is twisted, sinful, and self-condemned. You, you could not get more strong language. Paul is warning Titus of divisive people within the church. These are people that cannot, cannot control their tongue. They are rebellious and angry. They speak evil of others regularly. They are rude. They're rough. They're self-righteously critical. And Paul says they're dividing the church. And his command to Timothy, the pastor, is you've you got to deal with this. You can't let it fester. Now, to be clear what we're dealing with here, a divisive person is different than a person who gives a dissenting voice. Example is we could come together this afternoon at 1.30 for our family meeting, which I hope you can join us as we talk about property stuff and potential building projects and all the things that may be coming on the horizon here and have people say, you know what, I, I got a question or two about the things we're doing on this side of it and I kind of disagree with how we might be angling this and we work through that challenge to get somewhere versus a divisive person who was like Absalom who would stand at the city gates for David, he was David's son, and just draw people to himself and say, I really question what David's counsel is to the nation. And over time, begin to divide God's people. See, a dissenting voice is helpful when it's pointing toward truth and wants to get to a certain solution. A divisive one is one that doesn't want a solution. They just want to divide God's people. And the seriousness of that person demands 
according to Paul, a serious response from the church and her people and her leaders. And you have to, you have to think through this. So, you know, last week when we talked about dealing with sin, we looked at Matthew 18 and we noticed that, hey, you know what, if I deal, if I've I've sinned or a brother sins, I'm going to go to them privately. If they repent, I've won a brother. If they don't, Jesus gave us a step-by-step process. And you're going to notice when you read Matthew 18, it's like a three to four, even five part process that is deliberate. It is patient. It is long suffering. It is wanting somebody to repent and change. But I want you to notice Titus three. Notice this process. You warn him once and then twice and you have nothing more to do with him. In other words, remove the divisive person swiftly because they are so dangerous that they, there's not any room for them to stay in the church after a first and a second warning. In other words, Paul doesn't give us this long-suffering, patient response. It's swift. Now you have to ask why. Why, why is God... Why does God have this person in his crosshairs? Why is God so concerned about division in the church? What what are the reasons behind this? Well, some of the things you can notice is when you look at the consequences of a sin, the consequences of a sin always reveal the importance that God places on the not sin. So example, this situation. The consequences of this sin reveal the importance of how God views unity. Anytime you read hard consequences that God gives, it always gives you the importance that God places on what has been taken. So an example of that is in the Old Testament law. It's where we find the idea for capital punishment. An eye for an eye, a life for a life. Reveals the importance that God places on the sanctity of human life. If somebody intentionally takes a life... God says a life should be taken. Why? Because God values life. In this text, God values unity among his people. He values harmony among his people. And if somebody disrupts that, they are to be dealt with swiftly and strongly because God loves the unity of his people. See, this shows us that. It shows us how much God loves the unity of his people, but it also shows us, doesn't it, how much God hates the sin of being divisive. I mean, Proverbs 6, in laying out the sins that God hates, gets to the very last sin in verse 19, one who sows discord among the brothers. As much as God hates discord, he loves unity and harmony among his people. This is why the psalmist described the unity of the brothers in such glowing terms in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like precious, like luxurious, expensive oil being poured out. It's like dew on the mountaintop. God loves it when his people dwell together in unity. Therefore, there's a strong consequence for those who are fighting against that. But this swift consequence also shows us something else. It shows us the need in God's church for shepherds, pastors, and leaders. So you, you may live with an anti-institutional view of the church. You, know, you may think to yourself, you know, leaders are, I can be a leader in my own home. I'm, I'm pastor of things. Thank you very much. I can be by myself and do my own thing. I want you to realize something. This text is written to pastors. 
It is written to men to rise up and protect the flock. It is written to men whom the church needs at times to say, that's divisive, that needs to be addressed. That's an error that needs to be spoken out against. There is sin in the ranks that must be addressed. You're going to notice something when you read your Bibles. You're going to notice that there are different metaphors for different types of people. You have the sheep, which are the people of God. You have the swine, which are people who are proud. They're self-righteous. They're religious people like the Pharisees. And there are wolves in the Bible who are those who look sound and act like sheep, but they hurt the sheep from the inside out with their words and their actions. Matter of fact, Paul warned about this in Acts chapter 20 when he left the Ephesian elders and said to them, there will be wolves rising up from among you. We're told throughout Scripture that we are to care for, feed, and love the sheep. We are to rebuke the swine and warn them about the disaster of their lives to come. But listen, we are to remove and shoot the wolves. Wolves have no place in the body of Christ, and God has given us shepherds under the leadership of Christ to help us deal with wolves in the body. That's why Paul wrote this section to a pastor. We cannot allow wolves to prey upon God's sheep and use division to accomplish and achieve their goals. God wants wolves dealt with severely because God loves his people and God wants his people protected from wolves. So when you're looking for a church, look for shepherds who will lay down their lives for their sheep. Look for that. Look for shepherds who are not afraid to say, that's a wolf and we need to deal with it. Look for shepherds who are sound in doctrine that will keep the gospel in front of you over and over again. And when you read this text, you, you have to read this text with the seriousness with which Paul wrote it. I mean, you can, you can feel Paul writing here and just penning these words with this knowing Titus the wolves are in your ranks and you've got to be prepared. You can feel that. And I think to just apply it further to us in our context, in our world, we just need to apply this to about how, what are some sins that can potentially become divisive in the ranks that we should be aware of? I mean, we can list a few of them, right? We can pick out pride, self-righteousness. We could pick out selfish ambition and jealousy because the Bible says that where those exist, <clears throat> there is disorder in every evil practice. We can talk about false teachers who want to distort the truth and, and for their purposes turn people away from the truth of God. But for the context of our series on relationships and our context today, I want to consider two sins. I want to consider gossip and slander. And let's be clear about this. A divisive person is someone who will not stop no matter the warning. They're dangerous. So we could potentially gossip about someone. We could potentially slander something, someone. Be confronted and stop and change. That's not necessarily a divisive person. Everybody get that? I've had people literally say to me, they're gossiping and they're divisive. And my response is, did you confront them yet? No, let's go do that first before you bring the label to bear, right? So, you, so let's make sure we're dealing with here. 
if, if, there's, if there's a person in our ranks doing these things with intent to harm, they've been warned and they won't stop, then we've got an issue way to do it. And it needs to be addressed. So let's define what we're talking about with these sins so we can get a clarity about what we're dealing with, okay? Ken Sandy, in his excellent book on peacemaking, wrote this, wrote this. Gossip is often both the spark and the fuel for conflict. To gossip means to betray a confidence or to discuss unfavorable personal facts about another person with someone who is not part of the problem or its solution. Even if the information you discuss is true, gossip is always sinful and a sign of spiritual immaturity. Slander involves speaking false and malicious words about another person. The Bible repeatedly warns against such talk and commands us to have nothing to do with slanderers who refuse to repent. We should be especially sobered by the fact that the Greek word diabolos, translated as slander or accuser, is used 34 times in the Bible as a title for the devil, the world's chief slanderer. Now leave that up there for me, Saray. These are sobering words. But I want you to notice a few things about this. Notice that gossip and slander is the spark and the fuel for conflict. Just like kindling for a fire, gossip and slander are for conflict. Where there's no gossip and slander, generally there are no conflicts. Gossip and slander fuel conflict. Gossip means to discuss unfavorable personal facts about another person with somebody who's not part of the problem or the solution. Meaning, it's not gossip If you go to somebody for help to say, I need help on this situation, would you please help me how to counsel this or serve this or communicate to this, and you give them facts to help them help you, that's not gossip. It is gossip to go not asking for help and just blab your jibs about whatever it is that's on your mind, about that are unfavorable facts about the individual who's not part of the problem or not part of the solution. Slander is speaking what is false with intent to hurt. And notice, slander finds its root where? From the devil. Now notice how the Bible portrays these two sins. Proverbs 16 says, These sins, unlike any other, separate friends. And if you've ever had friends that have gossiped and slandered you, who were friends, you know what this feels like. There's nothing more painful. Proverbs 18 would say that these sins are sweet to the taste, but they're bitter to the stomach. 2 Timothy 3 says these sins are rebelliously done by those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, and we should avoid those who practice them. We should, again, stay away from people who practice these particular sins. So what you're noticing is these are remarkably divisive sins in nature. And because their source is the devil, then we need to do some work. We've got to ask, okay, then how do we protect ourselves? Right? How do we as a church guard against these things happening in, in our church? How do we protect redemptive relationships? That's our third point. See, the difficulty of these sins, gossip and slander, is that our natural selves love, we love to get nuggets on other people. I personally think it's why social media is such a great fad. Because you get nuggets on people, you get to see things that they're doing, and it gives you something. I mean, it's some endorphin thing, I don't know, some adrenaline pump, I don't know, 
We get it. It's natural to us. It's one reason why we're drawn to conspiracy theories. We want to know the behind the scenes work about what's happening. And we think we know every detail of every fact. And my response normally is, I got a question. Were you there? Well, no. Then you don't know for sure, even though it seems like it. So why are you so worried, worked up about it? Because it does something. We love, we love to get these nuggets. But the crazy thing is, these nuggets produce conflict. They produce division, which is exactly what our enemy is after. See, you get an unfavorable gossip note from somebody that's not your information. What do you begin to assume about the person that you heard about? You start thinking unfavorably about them. There's separation that takes place. So how do we protect this? I mean, how do we deal with this? I mean, in our church, by God's grace, we've not been a place of gossip, thank God, that we've heard of. I mean, you don't go out and have roast pastor for lunch that I know of, and I'm thankful for that, right? After church, you generally go and have, you know, whatever you do at home and with your friends, and you talk about life, and you enjoy life. But how do we protect the unity that God has given us? Because listen, you've heard me say it. One Sunday, one Sunday, these sins could just drop in and take root in our hearts. So how do we protect this from any moment so we can be on guard? In a sense, how do we put preventative measures up to help us spot divisive people so we can deal with them swiftly, but also protect us from these sins of gossip and slander which could divide the people of God? How do we do it? Well, here's some thoughts that are in your sheet. And the first thing we have to do is start by seeing ourselves at the foot of the cross. We've got to be people who believe that Jesus has forgiven us much and that he is our king. And because that is true, we then have compassion on other people. We're ready to forgive. And we see ourselves at the foot of the cross, sinners just like they are. And we have a king who will give us power to overcome these divisive sins. Meaning this, listen, if you know right now, you know what, I've I've got a gossipy group of friends. And we just get involved, we start talking about things, and I just let it go. Seeing yourself at the foot of the cross says this, you have a king who will forgive you right now. And you have a king that will empower you to stop. You don't have to keep living in that gossipy world that you're living in. You don't have to keep giving in to that. Further, if you've been gossiped about or slandered about, This tells us, knowing that we're at the foot of the cross, tells us we have the power in Christ to forgive others who've gossiped about us or slandered about us, spread bad news about us all over the world, and yet never came to us to ask us to forgive them, we can still forgive them. Seeing ourselves at the foot of the cross, we've got to start there. It gives us power and the ability to recognize we don't have to stay here anymore. But secondly, we need to make a repeated habit of making charitable judgments of other people. And I want to get this one out there because I'm just being honest with you. The last two years have taught us to think critically of others. At every turn, you get a new mandate. Immediately, you get a new mandate. There's critical thoughts all over everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere, right? Because our first inclination is thinking critically of others about others not thinking charitably that's especially dangerous in the church thinking charitably means this ken sandy wrote this in his excellent article on critical charitable judgments he wrote this 
A charitable judgment is an inclination to believe the best about others and look for the best in others until clear facts prove otherwise. See, our tendency is somebody sins against us, we immediately assume all the bad facts about them. We immediately assume the worst. So we say things like, well, why would I go talk to them about this sin? It never works anyway. Well, have you tried? Well, no. Well, how do you know? The facts aren't proving otherwise. This will protect us. Thinking charitably will protect us from jumping to conclusions and beginning to be suspicious of others and being suspicious of everybody's motives all around us. I mean, we do this so naturally. We immediately assume and impugn evil motives on other people all around us, and they could do something really innocent. And before you know it, they're part of the Gestapo. I mean, that's how far we go with things. When we stop thinking charitably about one another, we are opening ourselves up to gossip and slander. Thirdly, talk to people rather than about people. Remember, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault and to him and him alone. Sin is to be kept as private as possible. I, I would even add, listen, it may not even be sin, but you've got an issue with somebody, you don't like the way they stared at you at church on a Sunday or, you know, whatever it may be, rather than going home and railing on your kids about that mean-spirited Mr. York, you know, go sit down with Mr. York and say, dude, i got a question. Why did you give me the stink eye at church? Talk to them, not about them. Right? Sin is to be kept as private as possible. If the sinner comes to you and they ask you to forgive them, that moment is to be kept as private as possible. The only moment it goes more public is when the sinner has been confronted and refuses to repent, and it's their choice by their unrepentance to bring others to get involved. Thirdly, or fourthly, don't let others park their gossip ship in your harbor. This is an excellent suggestion from the best, very practical theologian I know in the world, and it's my wife. She puts, she puts the gospel and theology in shoe leather better than anybody I've ever met, and this is one of her little tips. Don't let others park their gossip ship in your harbor. In other words, what she says, and she says this often is, if you think somebody's gossiping to you about information that's unfavorable or they're slandering someone, you need to ask them, hey, can I stop you for a second? Have you talked to that individual first? If the answer is no, then you say to them, then listen, I don't want to hear this, but I will do this. Why don't you go talk to them first, or better yet, I'll go talk with them. I've got their number in my phone. How about we contact them right now and we go sit down with them now? What that immediately does is it takes that big battleship of gossip and it shoves it out of your harbor. And it says to the potential gossip, I got no room here for that. We're not doing that. Better yet, you go talk to people, right? The amount of opportunities that we have in our church where people come to me and say, Dave, I don't know what to do with this situation. Somebody has done this to this individual. What do I do? My response is always, if you've been in my office, you know, have you gone to talk to them yet? No. Then do me a favor. Get back with me when you do, or I will go with you and talk with them. I'll let you do the talking. I'm just there to observe, don't let people park their gossip ship in your harbor. Fifth, if you have to say 
please don't repeat this or please don't share this with others. You should consider it if you should share it at all. This is a great tip from one of my favorite confidants in the world, Mike Keller. This is Mike's thoughts regularly about how to keep confidentiality. Now, there are some situations when it's prudent to say this. You're, you're getting help on a problem or you are confessing your sin to somebody and you say, I'd appreciate if you just don't share this with anybody else. But generally, if it's about somebody else's stuff, unless you're getting help to solve the issue or you're addressing an issue with an individual, you have got to ask, should I even share this at all? Lastly, speak and listen in such a way that provides grace to those who might hear what is being discussed. Ephesians 4.29 makes this very clear. We're to speak with one another in a way, notice that little phrase, that it might give grace to those who hear, meaning those who are within earshot. Imagine moms and dads, grandpas and grandpas, grandpas and grandpas, about the conversations you have in earshot of the kiddos as you're disrespecting people all around you. We have to ask if what I'm saying or what I'm receiving is giving grace to people around us. I, can, I, I don't even want to go through the situations. I can count them, two of them, in my life where I said something out of my mouth thinking nobody else was hearing and somebody heard an incredible offense. Both situations I went to go reconcile. One of them I've never been able to talk to again. She never wanted to talk to me. She looked me right in the eye and said, I heard what you said. Don't come after me. I don't want to hear from you. The other one, the guy said, dude, I totally get it. The guy called me on the phone to say, FYI, my daughter was sitting in front, heard you say something derogatory about me. Can we talk? Oh, yeah. And I said, absolutely, I did. I blew it. Would you please forgive me? Dude, I forgive you. Yes. This is so weird because I never thought you'd ever do that. Two times. That's where this principle comes from. The unity of God's people is so important to God that he tells us to deal with this kind of stuff firmly. This is one of the reasons why Jesus came to us. So that we might might return to living in relationships that reveal the harmony, love, and joy in the Godhead. See, when redemptive relationships are happening, you know, it reveals to the world something powerful. Now, let me say something before we close. This church has experienced a remarkable season of peace really since our inception. God has been very kind to us. We, have we had issues? Absolutely, we've had issues. But God has brought to us a remarkable unity. We should never get arrogant about it. We should never think we're immune. Instead, what these principles are basically say this, let's protect it. Let's protect it the way God has laid it out, right? So listen, you, you might be realizing today, I, I, I've been gossiping. Today's a good day to repent. You have a good king who cares for you. You might think that, you know, I've let others park their sh gossip ship in my harbor and I gotta begin to, I gotta begin to do some moving of the stuff out. Today's a good day to repent and God will give you power to do that. You may be here today and you go, I've never heard the church, church talk about unity like this. I thought the church, all they did was gossip and slander and hurt each other. Can I just say something? 
that, that's not to be the norm in the Christian church. The norm in the Christian church is to have a flavor of heaven in it. And by God's grace, we've been able to experience that. So let's protect it. Let's pray. Father, we recognize our, our need this morning. And church, where you're at, would you just confess to God your need? Lord, we, we love gossip. We love to hear slander. We love nuggets on things. And Lord, we, we are prone to more division than we could ever imagine. But yet you, our God, you have given us power and you've given us a plan. So Lord, we, we just confess our sin to you. We acknowledge our need before you. And we thank you for your help. And then Father, would you continue to help CLF be an outpost of heaven with the fragrance of Christ and give us grace to do these things for your glory, for the good of your people, and for the advancement of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.